Collins produce a wide selection of popular primary and secondary geography resources, as well as a trusted range of world atlases for all ages. Find out more about their Key Stage 3 Geographical Inquiry series, developed with the GA. Fieldwork for GCSE Geography, revision materials and more at collins.co.uk forward slash jogpod. Hello and welcome to Jogpod. Today it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Alistair Hamill. Now I've been I've been doing a bit of research, Alistair, because my Amazon Prime says you're a geography teacher and an aurora chasing landscape photographer. Get your teeth around that one. So it sounds to me like the perfect match. <laughs> I've got a lot of fun tonight. Thanks for agreeing to join me on Jogpod. Thanks very much, John, uh, for the invitation. Yes, geography teacher by day, astrophotographer by night. So I'm coming to you live from my very own bat cave where all the photography post-processing goes in and I work all the magic to get those aurora photos going. So anyway, it's great to be with you and I very much look forward to our little chat this evening. Thank you. It's a shame that people can't see the backdrop that you've got on your Zoom here, which I can see because it's a wonderful sunset or sunrise photograph of the Giants Causeway. Yes, I, I like to go on while away many hours that I can just going there and geeking out on not only the beautiful scenes and the photography, but the absolutely amazing geological history that I'm sitting on. Um, if you've never been, it's definitely one to add to your bucket list. Oh, well, I haven't yet either. I've been to Fingal's Cave at the other side, off mould, but I've never been. Uh, so yes, I've, I've got that Treats still in store to come. And I want to talk about your photography later on. I, I really do, because I think you, you look at the landscape, with, yes, with a photographer's eye, but with the geographer's eye as well. But, so we'll come back to that. But I, so I, I struggled where to start. Because first of all, I came across what you were doing with GIS through Twitter, which I thought was just fantastic. And then I picked up on some of the conversations that you were having with people like Hafsa again on Twitter, and it was about plate tectonics, which I was really interested in at the time. And then I went to your YouTube channel and I watched your programmes there. And that's across a whole range of subjects. So then I was puzzling. And, and then I'm, I'm going to pinch this joke off you because you, you told a story about a response from a, an Irish local. He was asked for directions to a place by a lost tourist. And I can't do the accent, but the answer was, well, if you go in there, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to start going, with GIS. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're going there, I wouldn't start from here. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> I should have got you to do the punchline. You've integrated GIS into your teaching in a way that I don't think many teachers have done. Um, and I've seen what you've done with it. And you use it in a really powerful way. It's a real powerful tool for inquiry. And I do think there are many teachers who like to use GIS but are daunted by it. And, mm. I, and I think it is daunting. So what I wanted to do was ask you first of all, because uh, let's be honest here, you're no spring chicken either. Uh, you're, not, you're, not a, you're not a teacher in your 20s. So uh, well, what got uh, you into it? <laughs> let's just say I'm old enough to say when somebody finds out my age, the phrase that comes to mind now, well, it's better than the alternative. <laughs> 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 I let the listeners try and figure out how old that makes me. <laughs> 
Yeah, how did I get into it? Um, very recently is the short answer to that question. Around about three years ago, actually, it started. No, I, prior to that, I would say that I, I definitely had an interest in it. I had an awareness of it, but there was nothing anything more than that. Um, and I, I guess that I felt that as we were teaching some of those uh, very, very important geographical skills that we do, the cartography and things like that, uh, one of the things that really struck me was that increasingly our skills that we were getting our students to do were outdated. Now, listen, I know, John, there's a big, big debate on Twitter on, quote, 21st century skills, unquote. Um, and yet it did seem to me that as we were getting our students just to hand draw graphs and diagrams exclusively in our geography classes. Not that there's any issue with starting like that, but the issue really was that's as far as they went. It just didn't really feel like we were going as far as our subject has gone outside of the school setting. But I had no experience. I had no skills. Um, I had just an openness and a willingness. And then it was just one of these things that very often is the case, a serendipitous happening. I had a PGC student come to the school three years ago just around about the, the same time that Esri, the company behind ArcGIS Online, made the software free for schools. So I had a convergence of somebody who had some skills in this and access to the software, which, as you know, hasn't always been the case or the software you have had access to has been far from easy to use. Um, and I suppose also my lack of experience gave me a little bit of naivety. <laughs> I just thought, let, let's have a go and let's see where this journey takes us. I said, I'll, I'll try to be the best mentor for you that I can. I have one request in return. You teach me all that you can about GIS. And we started to learn uh, at that stage about how we would go about using it. And very quickly, we started to see that this was worth persevering for because not the technology itself, but the outcomes that were coming from it because of the geography we could do with it. But I suppose in, in my journey into it, the real light bulb moment started um, in November 2018, whenever having first started dabbling with GIS, I got wind of an event that was happening in the Titanic Quarter in Belfast. Beautiful part of Belfast if you want to go and visit the Titanic Museum and some of the great sense of history there. But in the midst of that, Esri Ireland were running an event for teachers about GIS. And I thought, yeah, I'll go along and have a little bit of a look. And I so vividly remember sitting in the little room. There were only maybe a couple of dozen of us when one of the uh, presenters was talking about this app called Survey123, which is an app that integrates in with uh, ArcGIS that allows you to collect fieldwork data and it maps it almost immediately. And as I was sitting listening, ideas started firing off in my head. Um, and I just was listening about that function. I thought, listen, if it can do that, maybe I can do this with it, with my students. And while the person was presenting at the front, all these ideas started tumbling around my head, all of the creativity in it. Um, and the ideas in particular were coming through something that, that I'm involved in in school, which is very, very dear to my heart, which is shared education, which is basically cross-community work between Protestants and Catholics in the town that I work in in Lurgan. It's a very, very divided town. And uh, unfortunately, just <laughs> before we recorded this, and instead of the beautiful images of the likes of the Jans Causeway coming from Northern Ireland, of course, images of um, young people riding has been filling the news. And, and that's mm -hmm. the, the dark side and the underbelly of life here. It's not the totality of it, but it's the underbelly of life here. So to be involved in shared education gives me an opportunity to give these young people a different experience, an experience which is more collegiate and more together. And I thought, ah, 
why don't we take them on a field trip around the town of Lurgan, going and visiting each other's residential areas where they live, the, the quote-unquote no-go areas, the other side of the town, or to use how we phrase it in Northern Ireland, that's where themons live. Usons are over here, but we don't go where themons go. What if we take them together and what if we have a journey and what if we use this technology to map their perception of place? What if we use this to unveil uh, and reveal what it is they feel about each other? Well, listen, I could spend the entire podcast talking about that. Um, I'm sure you're going to put some links in the end. I can link through to some videos that recorded when we were there. But suffice to say that went rather well. We did that in the January 2019. And Esri Inc., based in California, got wind of this amazing little story, as they thought, of these Protestant and Catholic young people from Northern Ireland in this divided town using this GIS, a GIS software to explore each other's perceptions. And believe it or not, that July, we find ourselves standing on the stage with three people, three teenagers in uh, San Diego in front of 19,000 people when they told the most compelling, wonderful, hopeful and inspiring story of how they had used this software to understand each other better and break down barriers. Um, and I just remember just being backstage before it was my turn to come on to try and follow them after they'd been on and welling up at just how amazing they had done and just feeling how, how powerful a tool this was. But that all came from that little idea, just sitting in that room, just when somebody was saying, here's what this software can do. And those ideas started sparking off for me. So it, it really brought me then to think about um, how do we approach the use of technology in schools in general? Um, part of my role, I'm a senior leader in school as well as being head of geography department and I'm, I'm responsible for teaching and learning. So I, I'm having to train the staff all the time and try and encourage them to use some technology. And of course, whenever technology started to, to come in, uh, remember the iPad revolution, John? What was it, about 2010? 2011, something like that, whenever it was. And the iPad and the iPhone came along promising to do everything for us. There's an app for that. It was a very, very clever title, I thought. Um, and it, it created a, a perceived need for something that none of us realized was lacking in our lives. And we went out and bought these smartphones. And all of a sudden, here we are. And we had these smartphones. And they're almost ubiquitous now. And the technology came in. And the question was, here's the iPad. What are we going to do with it? which of course is completely the wrong question to ask. You need mm -hmm. to flip that round. What's your pedagogical intent and how can the technology help? But what I've discovered actually is I've used GIS is actually the question's a little bit more subtle and a little bit more interesting than that. So I want you to picture in your head, you know that classic sustainability diagram that us geographers love to use, the three overlapping circles. So the circle at the top in that is your know why. So it's your pedagogical intent. Why do you want to do what you want to do? And of course, that's exactly why we need to, or where we need to start with any um, new implementation of anything, whether it's technology or not. Then if you come down to the, the bottom left, think of there as the know-how, which uh, is your procedural knowledge. How do I use this? And of course, the problem with the iPad revolution, it started with that know-how. <laughs> And we lost ourselves in the click this, tap that, move this, do that, do the other. And hold on a minute, you lost me about three steps ago. <laughs> Slow down. <laughs> um, and we lost the pedagogical intent because of that. 
So that the top one is your know why, your bottom um, right is your know how. To me, the interesting question, this brought me back to sitting in that room in the Titanic quarter. The know what, you put that in the bottom left, is what you would call your functional knowledge. So the question I asked myself when I heard about survey one, two, three, oh, if it can do that, then maybe I can do this with it. And it actually really was a turning point for me in, in conceptualizing not just how I use GIS, but any technology. Because for me, the interesting conversation then is if you understand what the function of this technology can do, that's what generates some of the interesting pedagogical goals, the know why. And the interesting conversations between the know why and the know what. Because once you understand those, you go, right, if it can do this, then I can do that. And then, of course, the question inevitably comes, right, well, how, how do we do it? But if you're motivated by the other two, all of that procedural knowledge that you can get tied up in quite easily, actually, you've got the incentive to keep going. Okay, do this, do that. Hold on, hold on, you've lost me. No, because I really want to get this because I know why I want to use it. I know what it can do. This is worth persevering. And I suppose then it's just been that journey of understanding. So it's, it's been partly the use of the technology, but really understanding how to plan for it, which underpins an awful lot of the practice then that have put into place since then. I love the way you've used it to deepen uh, the, the understanding of place. And it, it, you could do that anywhere. I remember going to a sixth form lecture that Danny Dowling did at Sheffield University. And all the students had piled in. There must have been 200 of them. And he was asking questions about the, the areas in Sheffield that they perceived as no-go. I won't name any now because people get, get stinged up about it, but <laughs> have you been there? No, you don't want to get don't go there, you'll get knifed. How many of you have been there? Put your hands up. No one had been there, but they all knew that you got knifed down there and they all knew that, a bit like you were saying about, about your area. It, it, it's, it can apply to almost anywhere where students know their area or do they they know it for them how is it perceived by other people how does it change during the, during the day how does it change by the time you get to the evening I, I did one project with one lad who said to me you know that, that doesn't want to come down there so Nate it's too dangerous mind you if you were me you'd be all right <laughs> was his line <laughs> so he knew that places changed he knew that he had an understanding of place, but the way you've captured it, the way you've done that with that with that tool allows them to be there in the place. It's it's fieldwork that's exploring place and allowing them to record their own personal experiences and others at the same time while they're while they're understanding that place is nuanced and experienced by different people in different ways. And the same people in different ways at different times. Yeah. It, it's a real depth of uh, that 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 tool helps you go into but it's just the tool for doing that sort of thinking about the geography exactly so there's there's where you started talk us through some of the other gis work because i've looked at some of your videos now and if, if people who are listening to this haven't we'll put the links up to some of the things that you're doing at the moment what's what are you doing with your with your students 
Well, I suppose the, the place that I've got to now is that GIS use has just become absolutely, totally embedded in the way that I deliver geography. In as much as um, back in the <clears throat> 1990s when I started, uh, what was the technological pinnacle at that point, John? You'll remember it fondly, the old overhead projector. I remember fondly sitting, preparing lessons in the 1990s with my acetate pens, works of art they were, and the great craft behind all of that. So um, it just has become as ubiquitous and as embedded as anything like that would be, just simply because actually I've got to the stage now where if I'm going to do anything, the question that comes to mind is, right, well, GIS can probably enhance this, can't it? So let me have a little bit of a dabble. Um, so basically, the, the point that I'm at at the moment is where I've been creating a whole series of resources, and, and I'm really sharing those resources very, very widely uh, in Twitter and any, anybody that would like to use them, because I understand that um, one of the challenges of coming and, and starting to use GIS is sometimes you feel like you don't have the expertise. Um, and I, I suppose I would break that know-how circle, the bottom right-hand circle, into sets. There's the know-how to create. And yes, that does take a degree of um, experience, expertise, perseverance, that kind of thing. But there's another one, the know-how to use. And I would say that the learning curve for using that is very, very gentle. In fact, um, my students, uh, whenever I've, I was doing one particular exercise with them, looking at downstream changes in a river in Glendon River in County Antrim, they were going on and collecting some data from little points that had dropped into the map. Uh, and this beautiful 3D scene viewer where they can travel around and really get a sense of the changing river valley as you move downstream. And um, the GIS use was going extremely well until we got to the point where I said to them, right, as you're collecting your data, can you put it into a spreadsheet and draw a graph? Oh my goodness, the lesson <laughs> went completely belly up at that point, um, just simply because they didn't really know how to use a spreadsheet. And yet the GIS, no problem. Uh, and that maybe gives a little bit of a sense of if you're using uh, something that's already been created, the, the procedural knowledge for using it, uh, for knowing how to use it is actually very, very um, reasonably straightforward. So in terms of the, the pupil use at the moment, I would say a few of the principles that would guide me in this, whatever year group I would be using it with, I like to think that it, it gives me what's called a scaffolded freedom or gives the pupils a scaffolded freedom. Um, I have this one particular example from Typhoon Haiyan, which is, is a great example of this. I put together some resources that I was using for my pupils to explore that. So if you imagine starting off looking at the global pattern of the world, where do you get your tropical storms and coming in from an overview of Typhoon Haiyan and seeing the overlay of the satellite image, getting a sense of the size of it, the track of the typhoon as it traveled across the Western Pacific, and then coming in closer again to the islands, looking at storm storm da damage, and then finishing up at Tacloban City. Many of us, of course, will use Haiyan as a case study, and I'm, I'm quite sure that many of us will look at the tragedy in Tacloban City of that. Um, the storm surge that swept across whenever the centre of the typhoon passed and the wind direction changed. But I found this layer that had individual building damages for the city. And I was able to go in and zoom in to a building by building scale where you were looking at those buildings that were damaged and those that were absolutely destroyed and be able to look at the pattern and the relationship between distance from the sea and that damage and things like that. And that's really what I was hoping the students would do. And then in this lesson, when they were spotting that, 
I remember one of my pupils put his hand up, called me over, Mr. Hummel, he said, is there a relationship here? Is there something to do with the size of the buildings and the damage? And I had a look at the map and there it was right in front of me. Only I hadn't noticed it when I was preparing it because I was so caught up in these other things. The buildings close to the edge of the sea, of course, that available land is where a lot of the shanty towns were located. The smaller buildings that were much, much more vulnerable to the storm surge bore the brunt of it. And as you move further inland where the buildings became bigger, they were damaged rather than destroyed. But that was a great example, one very early example for me of this scaffolded freedom, of the fact that this is not a static map or static resource that pupils can go in and explore. And of course, we'd covered all the theory beforehand. This wasn't complete discovery learning. We'd covered it all. But what he was doing there was applying his geographical knowledge to completely new context, to completely new place. And he was making connections that I hadn't even made. And that's a bit of an insight as to, to what they can do. So for me now, it's, it's about creating lots of opportunities really just to unleash powerful geography like that, to take theoretical concepts, um, like say for an example, looking at um, river features. Uh, this is one that I did with my year 10 class during the most recent lockdown. Uh, I wanted to take away, uh, take them out from that kind of theoretical schematic pictures. You know, those uh, sketches that are done where every single conceivable river feature is packed into yes. this hypothetical and completely unrealistic landscape, such that if the students ever were to go out into the, the actual landscape, I just wonder the extent to which they'd be able to recognize these features. What you mean? It doesn't look exactly like the textbooks. You mean the features aren't all together? So how better to do that than to take them to this fabulous little valley, which is not too far away from where I live in County Antrim again. I love County Antrim. Called the Dun Island Water Valley, um, where you've got this ancient fault that cuts down through the geological layers. So we, we're all the way down to the mudstone with the limestone above it and with our layer and the top, the icing on our geological cake here of our wonderful um, basalt from the um, volcanic activity 60 million years ago. And it slices way down, this valley opens up. And then of course, at the side, we've got this wonderful waterfall, Glenow waterfall, absolutely beautiful location, slicing down through the basalt, through the limestone. And it's a classic example of the harder rock and the softer rock underneath, but very much embedded in the landscape. And with the valley and the meanders and the floodplain and everything like that, to take them through this GIS, to go and explore that, to go and find some data. And, and they, I got them to do summary posters at the end of, of really an opportunity to gather together a lot of their thinking on what we'd been studying. And John, what they produced just absolutely blew me away. Again, this generative learning, this ability to go in there and make those connections and to apply their geology and or their geography into the real world is, is absolutely brilliant. So it's it's really just opportunities like that to take what they know and unleash it and allow them to explore. It takes a lot of limitations away, I think, doing it that way. You've you give them a, a better perspective on uh, their locational knowledge because you can zoom in and out very quickly using a, a geographer's lens. We've talked about that before, being a, the, the geographer who can zoom and look at things closely and look out and see the context. So it improves mm -hmm. their locational knowledge, but it also 
as you say, take them into the messy real world. I've had students in the past, some of mine, who've, who've tried to, to study doing their, their A-level project, something that they've read in the textbook. They collect their data. It doesn't fit to what the textbook example says it should do. So they, they think they're wrong. I'm wrong, sir. They no, don't. you're not. Did you collect the data properly? Yes, I did. How did you sample it? That was very good sampling. So you can't be wrong then, can you? I, yeah, but I am. No, you're not. <laughs> Let's have a look at what the messy real world looks like. Yeah. And this takes students into that. So it gives them the freedom to explore yeah. much more widely than uh, a textbook example would, or, or even a paper in uh, it, it, on the internet, because they've got so many layers. You were talking about the geology there, so you could end up with interrogating the attributes behind the geology layer, but not tell them too much, just allow them to develop that that approach and inquire for themselves with a framework which you've given them. Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the one that I'm working on, and I was doing this just before we started recording tonight, that uh, again, the time of recording, we have that wonderful uh, volcanic uh, episode that's happening in Iceland at the Reganish Peninsula of the, uh, excuse my, Icelandic Begelding Adeller Valley, I believe. And I've managed to find some information because, again, we let so much information available on this, on the, the lava flows, where they're going, the different locations of the, the craters and things like this. But I've also found a projected map of if the eruption continues to go in the way in which it's currently going, where this will ultimately go to. So I thought there's a great little opportunity for the students, because again, you can use that 3D scene layer from ArcGIS, which allows them to move around the landscape in the way you would be used to in Google Earth. So it's not just a flat map with contour lines on it, it's a three-dimensional living landscape. So their next little exercise, I've got a little dot from two valleys where this is coming out from, uh, the starting points, so two dots the starting point, two finishing points down by the sea, and their job is to join the dots. But of course, they've got to join the dots following the topography. So what they're going to have to do is to move and manipulate the, the map. They're going to have to move around in three dimensions, try and get a sense of the shape and the topography of the land, and then use this tool in um, ArcGIS Scene Viewer, which allows them to draw um, the uh, cross-section or elevation profile. So they'll be able to trace that down. And there, there's a wonderful little place in this where there's a, a great opportunity to explore some geography in the real world. Because if you imagine this, it, it actually looks like a classic downstream gradient in a river, starts steep and then gentle, becomes more gentle because of course they're gonna flow down the valleys. But there's one little valley where it comes down and almost like a bowl shape, there's a little lip and then the lip goes back down again. And it's yet it's projected to go over the top of that. So how does lava flow uphill? Is going to be my question to them. So in what ways is lava like a river? In what ways is lava like a glacier? But also we can use this tool to measure the height of that lip. The lava flow up near where the uh, fissures are at the moment, I believe is on average about 60 meters deep. This lip, if you measure it using uh, this uh, GIS um, software, is about 20 metres high. So could a 60 metre lava flow flow over the top of a 20 metre lip? Now, that's 
the answer that I'm going to get them to work towards. We'll give them the clues. We'll give them the ideas. But for them to go and explore that and try and hypothesize then about, right, there's the messy world, right? There's the messiness of this. Right? Lava flowing uphill. It's madness. Well, no, not if you apply your understanding. If you apply understanding of how lava moves, the thickness of it, and all sorts of things like that, there's an opportunity for some really powerful investigative geography there, I think. Mm. Now we talked, we've talked before, and we talked about Joseph Kursky, who I spoke to on a podcast earlier, who's who's just the most madly enthusiastic GIS person I think I've ever spoken to, apart from perhaps yourself. But <laughs> it's sometimes I leave Joseph and I think, crikey, that was that was just so powerful. I don't know where to start. So imagine I'm I'm a teacher who's now interested but unconfident. Two questions here. One, when you finish this, is this something I can lift? Will this be on your, on your YouTube channel and I can go and find the resources? Because I'm, me, I'm, I'm unconfident, so I'm struggling for, to, to how to start, but I'd like to try that some, something that somebody else has done. And if you're mentoring me, where do you start with me, unconfident GIS, but wanting to try it? Yes, uh, they've answered your first question. It's a very simple yes. Um, I'm very, very happy to share anything and, and everything. Um, I am working on a website behind the scene that maybe collates everything together in, in a slightly more accessible and slightly less ad hoc manner. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and, and there are other people that are producing great resources uh, as well. Um, so what I would say, if, if you're wanting to start and get involved in it, the, the first thing is to get connected with other people that are using that. Uh, as I said before, the, the know-how, that procedural knowledge, and know-how to create, well, okay, that's maybe not the place to start. Know-how to use? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, as again, as we record, um, John, as you know, I have a broken hand at the moment. I can't drive, so I'm teaching from home, uh, live streaming from home to the big screen of, in the front of my classroom. They love my pupils, my big mug, <laughs> large in front of them all. But I've got a sub teacher in at the moment who um, is basically pressing all the buttons in the classroom to make sure everything works. Um, she hasn't ever really used GIS before. Um, and she's now had two weeks sitting in my classroom watching how we use it. And I was just chatting to her earlier on today and she said, look, you've got to teach me. I, I want to see how this works. Because what she has just seen is how powerful this is and the, the difference this can make to the pupils. So connect with, with people that are doing that. Um, the, the next thing then is just simply learn the way my pupils learn, learn by doing. Yes, there are things that you can do out there that uh, will be courses that will train you on it. But I don't know. Is it, is it like a generational thing, John? I don't know. Whenever you get a new piece of technology or something, do you ever read the manual or do you just weigh on in there and think, oh, God, I'll be able to figure this out somehow, won't I? <laughs> that's, that's definitely my approach. Um, so, yeah, just, just jump on in. Listen, if my year 10 pupils can do it remotely at home, during lockdown, <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. It'll take a little bit of work, but it's not impossible. Um, and then I think um, if this is something where you're leading some of the others, uh, and maybe you're head of department and you want to encourage some other members of your department to get, get involved in that. The one thing I would say is that remember all the time when you're doing this, you're pitching an idea, not the software. This isn't actually about the software in the final instance. 
the software is the tool. The software will inspire some creativity if you, that's the know what again, what can it do? But you're pitching the idea. Anytime I'm sharing about GIS, it's very rarely do I sit down and go press this, press that, press the other, because as, as was mentioned earlier, that's where people get lost. And oh, you, come you away. one click away from hell, aren't you? You, you <laughs> click it. And what, how do I go back from here? I can't. Oh, and then it's a disaster. I know. Um, yeah, and, and I guess if, if somebody is providing the training there and it's, it's that worst nightmare that some people are flying through and some people are stuck. So you, you just go to the people who are stuck and go, right, press that, that, that. That's it all sorted. Right, we're all ready to move on. Um, and the, yeah, you don't really leave knowing how to do it at that stage. Um, I, I, that's why those three knowledges, the know why, the know how and the know what, I, I think if you enter primarily through the know how, that's where you you can get stuck very very quickly. Um, so the uh, you're pitching this idea. Whenever I'm sharing GIS with other people, what I'm trying to say to them is, this makes your geography better. This is such a powerful tool. Mm. Um, this is what it can do, and this is why I'm doing it. And almost inevitably, when I get to the end of those presentations, I'll get the emails or the comments afterwards. Um, oh yeah, I'm really interested now. How do you do that? And if, if you get people coming up to you and saying, how do you do that? Um, I, I think you've, you've somehow managed to motivate them there. So if you're, if you're trying to encourage others to do it, um, don't start necessarily with the, here's a manual, go and um, work your way through that. Throw them into an exercise that gets them excited about the geography that comes out of it. And you'll probably, in most cases, win them over. Well, you've already talked, I think, about well, not to think you, you have, you've talked about how it improves their critical thinking. And a couple of your examples already have shown that. And inquiry learning. So it's, it's, it's the geography that I think excites students most because it gives them a freedom within a structure to come up like they, like they did with you with, and say, hey, sir, uh, I've, I've, I think I've got something that you perhaps haven't seen. Yeah. Well, what a moment that is in uh, really? <laughs> when a student does that. Talk us through how you develop your students in, in developing skills and knowledge of understanding. How, how does that work so that they can manage and manipulate big data sets? Yeah, do you know, I, I think this is a huge, a huge part of this. Um, you know, and you mentioned there about critical thinking. Um, and, I, you know, one of the subjects I, I teach, other than geography, I teach a, an enrichment class for A-level students in critical thinking, where we... We, we explore how to think well and uh, also things like this. And, and I look at, at the potential there is in geography for that. And I think we'll probably come to this a little bit later if, if we have time <laughs> um, if with Vulcan de Fuego, uh, where we'll chat a wee bit more about that. The potential there is in geography to make our young people critically reflective consumers of information is vast. And it's something that I feel really strongly is, is an important part of what I want to try and give as a gift to the young job that sit in my class. Because, of course, in these days, again, we mentioned 21st century skills earlier on. And this is an off-quoted uh, phrase that I disagree with entirely. In a world where Google exists, you don't need knowledge anymore. <laughs> you just Google it. Um, I, I could not disagree with that more because I think that given the amount of knowledge that's there just at the click of a button, more than ever, our students need a robust knowledge schema. Mm. It helps them to be critical consumers of that information so that they can think about it 
in a way that's informed. So let me give you an example of that. Is 400 a big number? And it's all relative, depending on what you're comparing it to. Exactly. Is 400 millimetres a lot of rain? So I think that's an example of a piece of knowledge that you could easily Google. But for me, that's something that I think my students should know. I think they should have some reference points about rainfall. So if I'm looking at biomes, say, for instance, and we look at the, the prairies, North American prairies, average annual rainfall, 400 millimetres of rain. Is that a lot? What does that mean? Well, yeah, what's it, what's it mean? They, they need some kind of reference point. And I think this is where geography is, is as relevant and perhaps more so than ever, because this is where we give these anchor points for, for our students. Um, so that I, I do absolutely think that that knowledge scheme is foundational to this. But having said that, um, the access that we have to data sets now is like nothing that was before. John, I still remember in the 1990s going and getting newspapers or, I mean, the geography review from the 1990s, whenever it would come in, and you would pour through there for just that diagram that would be the perfect little diagram that would illustrate that what you wanted to do. And when you found it, oh my goodness, you had to look after that carefully, didn't you? And you went and photocopied it and you did not want to lose that because if you lost that magazine, it would be gone forever. Um, and I suppose for, for people that are kind of grown up in the world of the internet, it's hard even to imagine what it was like not to have this information there uh, was was quite scarce. But now we can go on and get um, information of almost any, anywhere. The open data that exists, you know, if you go onto any kind of website, uh, we have access to so, so much. And yet we have access to so much that perhaps it's too much. How do we turn the noise into a signal? How do we separate them? How do we find a meaning in, in the data? And I think there, there are powerful stories waiting to be told there. But more than ever, I think we need effective tools to help us to do so. So we, we had chatted when we were thinking about what we might talk about tonight, about the whole notion of data presentation versus data visualization and how we uh, encourage our pupils to think well about the information that they're presenting. Uh, so that they're presenting these things well. It, it reminds me again of, of that uh, exam question that sometimes you can get with the skills, back to our geographical skills. You have two sets of um, quantitative data uh, presented in the table, question, um, choose and justify the appropriate graphing technique to represent this. And the mark scheme says, scatter graph or line graph because it's two sets of quantitative values. Yes. Well, I mean, of course that's true, but it just seems to me to be selling so far short of what we would maybe want to think, I get our students to think about. Um, in the world where we're, we're being confronted by so many stories and so much information, so much misinformation in a, almost a post-truth world where uh, people have enough of experts. <laughs> um, you know, I, there's just so much importance in us telling these things well. And I just think in terms of, of our young geographers, um, and I suppose it's the same of, of an equivalent of the, the GIS, you know, if, if all they're doing is hand coloring in choropleth maps. If, no, listen, start there if you want to, no problem, but it's just not the finishing point for me. If that's all they're doing, they're selling them short. 
if all they're doing is saying, why do you draw that graph? Because it's two sets of quantitative values. Well, isn't it possible to come up with more interesting ways of doing it? Data presentation becomes data visualization and asking it, is, is this story true? Is it important? Is the way that I'm presenting this clear? Is it compelling? So why am I drawing this graph? Why am I including this map? Why am I presenting it all like this? Because someone needs to tell this story in a compelling and powerful way. And why shouldn't it be me? Why shouldn't it be equipping our young people to realize that um, they can actually go out and use this information along with their knowledge schema that they're picking up in geography to go out and tell stories that matter and stories that are important and stories that can actually begin to nudge and change the world? Why not? Well, I want to carry on with that because you mentioned it earlier, really, this, this idea of compelling learning and, and telling a story. Um, and I want to ask you about the work that you've developed around the volcanic eruption in Guatemala. You mentioned it earlier, Fucante Fuego, because that came out of what was a typical exam question, but you've developed it much further so that the students get a much deeper understanding. Tell us what you've done, because rather than me opening my mouth and, and, and saying what you've done, talk us through it. Yeah, well, it, it came really uh, from the point that I last October time, it was coming to the point where I had to teach my volcano case study to my A-level students. And I don't know, but to my shame, John, I, I was still using um, Mount Pinatubo from 1992, um, two years before Friends started in TV. Is that old? Um, no, listen, I, I, old case studies aren't necessarily wrong. I think they provide context. Uh, you know, I think there are, again, a few of those anchor points that, that I mentioned earlier historically are interesting. So uh, Nevada del Ruiz in 1985, I remember watching that as an A-level student myself, that horrendous horror that came down to Armero and wiped out um, 25,000 people. Um, and it's just so potent and so powerful. Um, and then Pinatubo comes along, the first major eruption since then, have the volcanologists managed to advance their science? Have they managed to be able to communicate with the authorities in such a way to avoid that disaster again? Those things are important. There is an historical context to our subject as well. But nevertheless, it just felt like 1982 <laughs> really needed to be updated a little bit. I mean, these young people that I was teaching this to were born in 2003. <laughs> so it just needed something a little bit more updated. So what better time to update it when we're in the middle of a global pandemic? <laughs> when we're struggling with all this remote learning. I don't know, it's maybe a little bit madness, but it just felt the right thing to do. And I remember the time, um, the time thinking back to 2018, whenever I'd been aware of this volcano that happened in Guatemala uh, called uh, Volcán de Fuego, uh, a volcanic eruption there. It was around about the same time the Kilauea in Hawaii was erupting. If you remember that summer where it was erupting for weeks and weeks and weeks, slotted into the news there was Volcán de Fuego. And it just seemed to me that um, that was maybe something that was a little bit more interesting for me to find out about. But I knew nothing about Guatemala. I've never been. Uh, it's not something that I could find out much about um, easily. So I started the research process. And of course, where do you go these days? You go to Google. And whenever you got something like that, Google takes you mostly to news stories. Um, this was obviously hit the news at the time. Um, about 198 people lost their lives, but it's estimated hundreds more that were buried by the paraclassic flow that will never be found. So it, it hit the news and I started to read these, these stories and, and I started to try and get a sense of what was happening. 
But our specification asks us to evaluate the preparations and response for the volcanic hazard. So it wasn't just telling the story. I had to begin then to make some value judgments on it. And I suppose as I started going through that, I, I felt an increasing kind of ethical responsibility, I think I would put on it, John. Um, because what I found, and, and maybe it was because it was so contemporary, I found all of a sudden that statements that I was willing to make about something that happened way long ago in 1992 felt like easy things to say if I was you know, sitting in judgment of the, the classic, well, the authorities' preparations were okay, but they could have been a lot better. That's easy to say about something in the past. But to say that about something so recent, it just really felt, and I don't really know why, but it just felt more of an ethical compulsion to try to fact check this an awful lot more. Um, so it started me in a process then of um, reaching out to some of the volcanologists that I had uncovered in those news articles that were working in Guatemala. And you go and look for them in Twitter, turn into a little bit of a social media stalker. <laughs> okay, there they are. And um, I just started reaching out to them. And you know what I found? They were so, so pleased <laughs> that somebody was showing an interest. They were really, really keen and willing to share and to help. And I started to get not just these um, secondary data information from news um, resources, but actually going to the primary data, to the people that were there, the people that could actually tell me because they stand at the foot of this volcano, they work with the locals. And all of a sudden I had this wealth of information coming in. But it also then made me think, do you know what? I think wouldn't be very useful for me with the students to go beyond the really bland kind of evaluation. Um, because this is where, again, we were talking about critical thinking. Geography has the potential here to create really powerful, evaluative critical thinkers in our subject. But it's all too easy for our evaluations to be, here's something positive, here's something negative. Therefore, in conclusion, was exactly how I put it to the students. I said, let's not be boring, shall we? Let's be interesting, right? Let's not just adopt a real middle position. Yeah, the authorities did some good things in terms of preparation, but it wasn't perfect. Therefore, it was successful to a certain extent. Yeah, well, do you know, it might get you the marks in the exam, but I suppose increasingly in this COVID situation when exams aren't happening, it's in some ways liberated us to think, yo, actually, let's just embrace what our subject offers, right? Let me just lean into this. Let me just really push these young people hard to be interesting. And yet when you put those two together, so this ethical compulsion to be accurate, to be truthful with the desire to be interesting, because the more interesting you are with your opinions, the stronger your evidence needs to be. If all you're saying is, that was successful to a certain extent, you don't really need strong evidence. But if you're going to come out with statements like um, the reason for the death toll being so high was as much um, a result of societal vulnerability, which was related to um, some of these ethnic groups that had been displaced by this civil war, as it was by the hazard itself, no, it's not a much more interesting thing to say, but my goodness, if you're going to be saying this about a real world situation, 
you know, there, I think there is the compulsion this necessary to, to get it checked. So it really was that, that fascinating journey that sent me to try and balance those two. But thankfully, I had all of these people that were the volcanologists that worked out there. So I, I did something, John, that I haven't done <clears throat> for nearly 30 years, <laughs> which is uh, I went to a couple of university lecturers said, will you mark my homework, please? <laughs> I um, I wanted them to um, give me some feedback, to basically to uh, well, listen. I like I like to think that it's been peer reviewed, John. Can I go quite that far? <laughs> I think we'll let you have that one. <laughs> Certainly, it's been critiqued, and my goodness, did they take me up on that offer? And uh, I, I was remarkably nervous as I was waiting for it to come back, and it, back it came, and you know they were very very honest, but you know it was brilliant because it gave me the opportunity to tweak and refine and change things. So uh, one particular example, whenever um, the disaster management organization in Guatemala is called Conrad, C-O-R, or C-O-N-R-E-D. And I had made some statement about the fact that they had not gone to one of these more vulnerable um, settlements, one of these displaced settlements that sits in one of the gullies beside Vulcan de Fuego called Los Lotes. Uh, they hadn't gone there to to warn the locals um, because they didn't have uh, good road access and they, they didn't have um, time to get in there and, and evacuate them in time. Uh, and one of the academics came back and said to me, no, you, you're being too simplistic there. Um, these people who are doing this work, um, you know, they're, they're trying the best. Yes, they're, they're having difficulties, but there was one man from this organization, Conrad, who made it to Los Lotes in time. He started to evacuate some of these people. And as he started to evacuate them, he put them in the back of the truck. And as he was trying to evacuate them, the paraclastic flow came down and he was killed in that moment. And for me to have been brought up short by that, and again, it comes back to this so easy to say the, the local organizations didn't really do their job. And behind that statement are all those individuals with those incredible acts of bravery that the wider world will never record, will never recognize. And yet for me to be able to stand in front of my sixth form pupils and tell them that story, John, my goodness, they, they were hanging on every word as the reality of this came home to them. For us in, in Lurgan and in County Armagh in Northern Ireland, thousands of miles away, to take a few moments and remember that man. You know, people are never truly forgotten while the reality of what they have done is spoken. And it just, for me, was this encapsulation of us striking that balance of saying things that were interesting and really getting them to grips with um, understanding the nuances and the subtleties and everything that goes in to make that particular place the way that it is, and yet to carry with it that sense of ethical, no, we need to honor these people behind these organizations that have been involved in this. Um, so it was a huge amount of work. <laughs> if I'd known at the start the amount of work it was going to be, I may not have done it. But my goodness, am I glad that I did it. Um, and there is just a wonderful little postscript to this, if I may. Um, just this week, I've been marking some of the work from my 
sixth form pupils um, as part of this glorious <laughs> creating process that we've got to go through. Um, would you would you mind if I read a wee bit from what one of my students has written? No, because I, I was going to say these are learning experiences that they'll take with them yeah. for the rest of their lives, I think. And I think you're just going to prove it. So, yeah. yes, do. Well, this is a shout out to Abby. Uh, and I just read this with so much pride. This is what she says. The question was, um, risk is more a result of societal vulnerability than it is of the hazards themselves discuss. So this is what Abby wrote. I believe to an extent the vulnerability due to poverty is one of the biggest factors affecting the risk populations face from natural hazards. However, planning in advance of natural hazards can reduce this vulnerability and is therefore an essential part of managing the risk. In the Vulcan to Fuego Guatemala case study, 80% of the fatalities from the eruption were from the villages populated by the poorer locals. This was a result of the fact that the authorities moved the population onto this land because it was cheaper. The result of this was that the local people of these villages did not trust the authorities. And while the government had tried to prepare for the eruption of the volcano, which may have saved some lives, the population of Los Lotes did not trust the authorities and therefore when the volcano erupted, they did not follow the instructions of the local representatives. In addition, the law in Guatemala prevented Conrad from sending messages to the locals via phones to warn them of the impending hazards. Consequently, many young people or many local people remained in the danger zone when the volcano erupted. However, it was recognized that given the sudden partial collapse of the summit of the volcano, it would have been difficult to have um, get these people any um, out of these villages in time. But in contrast, La Reunion, an upmarket golf resort with effective communications in the same valley as Los Lotes, was evacuated two hours before the largest paraclassic flow, and as a result, no one died there. Consequently, the poorest and least powerful people suffered most from the eruption of Vulcan de Fuego. That's hugely powerful, isn't it? And, and it's an approach that you've taken that's helped them have a nuanced understanding of place without it being misrepresented at all. You've, you've given them the, the different views to unpick and better understand. It's a real, well, it's a real powerful example of, uh, of critical thinking and inquiry in action. And that's, you're going to be sharing that too, aren't you? Teachers could pick up on that if they want to. Yes, yes. In fact, I've got an article coming out in the next edition of the Teaching Geography Journal, um, just about that. I topic. thought you did. <laughs> yeah. So you, get a of, you even get a chance to see my marked homework if you want. So you can see some of the comments, the academics. <laughs> but, Absolutely perfect. <laughs> As we're winding up, I just want to, I want to carry that theme on about you. I've watched what you've done on Twitter quite often, and you're very, very keen to get things right and there's been debates about about how we deal with the new thinking in plate tectonics which which i've seen you get quite exercised about because it, it, there have been dramatic changes in the past few years quite often that textbooks haven't caught up with at all mm. and i've seen the debates that you've been involved with in terms of uh, of mechanisms for moving those plates so how are you dealing with this with your students at the moment? It, it caused quite a stir when we put a, together a piece for conference, I think it was in 20, 2017, where we 
we were suggesting that what was in the exam specs wasn't up to date <laughs> enough and they were still teaching um, convection currents. But, but I've seen you with some really good examples when people have said, well, how do you, how on earth do you teach um, slab pull or what do you use to, to show ridge push? And you gave me a real good example of ridge push. So well, how do you go about it? What do you do? Yeah, well, well maybe I'll set a, a, just briefly a, a bit of the context for that because I think you're absolutely right, John, uh, in terms of discerning what is the, the blockages there of uh, specifications and mark schemes. And uh, I love your article. Can I say that? I absolutely Ooh. love it. And um, because... Duncan's mostly work, I have to say, Duncan Hawley. <laughs> well, you and Duncan have done a, a brilliant job at just bringing uh, up to date some of the, the broader understanding of, of the theories that go on there. The challenge in all of this, and I think why this is such a tension, is to try, and I suppose we're back again to you know, what we've just been talking about, the would you would you call it still the ethics? I suppose so of of getting this right, of saying things that are as as true as we possibly can, and yet feeling sometimes that if you are sharing some of that most up to date information with um, your young people, that uh, you just have this wonder at the back of your mind: will the exam specifications allow for that? Um, I was reading recently uh, Jane Dove's um, wonderful article in the Geography Journal of 2016, Reasons for Misconceptions in Physical Geography, which um, I would certainly recommend uh, going and, and digging out again if you're listening into this. But she talks about some of the reasons why we have some of these misconceptions, and they include things like textbooks, um, simplification, stereotypes, factual error. And yeah, I've, I have written some um, textbooks myself, so I, I can absolutely take that on the chin. It's very, very important to try and get that right. Teacher knowledge, um, again, it's so important why things like the Geographical Association can really help us. And your article is a very good way of keeping up to date with that. But the one thing that I would add is that exam specifications and, and mark schemes. Uh, so uh, I may take this platform, John, if, if you will allow me, if there are any people that listen into this from any of the examination boards, just to try and encourage them on us for this topic, especially. I think more than any topic in geography, um, tectonics is the one where we seem to have these residual misconceptions that are just harder to get rid of than in, in some others. Uh, and just to have that onus to understanding that this is a very, very dynamic and very, very fast changing science. Um, and and to have an openness to some of those more modern understandings. Because I, I do think that there is an opportunity here. I, I suppose we, we've touched a few times here on critical thinking. Here's another one. Um, geography, you know, I'm very proud of geography science. I have a BSc, and the science department sometimes like to look down and ask geographers, that you're not a proper scientist. Excuse me, I'll come along with my BSc, um, and, and I'll show you that if you want. Uh, yes, I'm very, very proud of geography science roots. And I would love to keep that within school geography. So why don't we see this as an opportunity for us to delve in? How do we know what we know about the scientific method? How does science advance? It advances by taking observations from the real world, hypothesizing theories on those, and then putting those theories out there and saying, right, prove it wrong. Discredit it. Tweak it. Change it. Update it. That's how science advances by that healthy degree of skepticism that constantly wants to advance understanding. 
and I think there's a tremendous opportunity, especially at A level here, for us with our again for with our young geographers to say to them, okay, this is a brand new theory. And I did, you have, you were telling what wonderful story. I mean, I, this theory was first come about whenever I was, you know, I think about the decade I was born. But you were you were saying something else about the fact that you weren't even were you not even taught it in school or something? Oh no, is that what you were saying? We, I didn't come across plate tectonics until I got to university through reading journals like Geographisca Annala. It uh, I went to university in seventy three. We looked at. Uh, our textbook had Dutton's theory of isostasy. We got about as far as that. So, I mean, that's a very, very recent theory, John. You would agree, wouldn't you? <laughs> For some of our younger <laughs> listeners, that might seem yeah, like a long, long, long time ago. I have no that's age. Very recent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, and to have a theory as young as that and constantly evolving, and, and also just our understanding of what lies beneath, I mean, it's relatively easy to go and observe a meander. <laughs> It's much, much more difficult to observe what's actually happening in a subduction zone. Um, but to understand that and then some of the more recent understanding that moves away from a simple understanding of um, uh, the convection currents to ridge push and slab pull and things like that. But all sorts of things like cold convection and, you know, what is it that's really driving the subduction and and. So, I mean, some of the things that you were looking at in the, the article was very, very interesting in relation to that and allowing us to peer underneath the, the surface of the planet. I found these, uh, the, oh, I think I passed it to you, the, the Atlas of the Underworld, I think it's fascinating, the, the tomography that we can look at now. Um, and that's, that's really easy to, to just draw a line. I've, in fact, I've seen you, you've taken it further since you've, you've put something up, haven't you, where you... You've, you've drawn a couple of lines and got students inquiring into it already, yeah, which is yeah. fascinating. Absolutely. And again, I just think these things are opportunities. So it's about coming along and, and having that openness. So, yeah, we'll, we'll just put that out there to any exam boards or chief examiners or anything you're listening. Uh, see this as an opportunity. Uh, don't constrain us by the specifications in the mark schemes, enable us to teach that really powerful epistemologically driven geography, help us to really understand the science of this well. Um, And there are ways that you can explain even the complexities of this without distorting it. Let's not say for any more. I think to be fair, because I mark for an exam board, they uh, they do say if something comes along and you think that might be right, but it's not on the mark scheme. Do go and check it. So I, I think some of the teachers' concerns were that um, examiners would only stick to the mark scheme, but I'm, I'm not sure that, that that's certainly not the advice that I get from my exam board that good, I mark. Good. Glad to hear that. Hey, listen, we're, we're almost running out of time, and I did want to talk to you about your photography because if anyone hasn't seen it, it's just brilliant. I just love it. So what, is, what I get from it is looking at a landscape in a different way, but it still looks as though you're looking at it with a geographer's eye, but you're also looking at it with a photographer's eye, really, if, if that sounds right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, it was no great surprise when I picked up a camera that I would veer towards landscape photography of all the types of photography I could do because it just gives me a great excuse to go to these beautiful places. And of course, I am totally biased. 
but I think Northern Ireland has got some of the most glorious and beautiful collection of scenery anywhere in the British Isles. And um, I suppose, especially given some of the images that you see coming from this country, if there's anything I can do to counterbalance that, uh, great. But mostly it just gives me an opportunity to go out and, and be in these places. Um, just as geography is best done in the real world, um, to actually get out and experience these things is a huge part of it. During lockdown, when I was doing remote learning, I actually took the opportunity to do some outside broadcasts for some of my students when I was doing live stream. So it started off just at, um, with my year 10s at, at the local river. And then we went on the coasts and I, I decided to, to travel a little bit further. So I would live stream from the beach when I was teaching about swash and backwash and looking at the storm beaches and all sorts of things like this while I'm actually there. And we know as geographers that actually being out in the real world, there's nothing quite like it. And it's exactly the same with photography. It's just an, an opportunity for me to, to get out there and to be in those places. And it's that sense of experiencing because I tend to go to places that are most beautiful, but when they're looking, they're most beautiful. So if I hike up the Mourne Mountains, I tend to be heading up when most others seeing people are coming down just in time for sunset. Um, and then whenever you're in that moment, this is where I think there's a big overlap between photography and geography. Um, photography, the essence of it is about noticing what's right there in front of you. Because I think, uh, I mean, we're, we're getting completely away from the science of geography there in a moment, uh, we were talking about a moment ago, but there's an artistic side to photography and how would you define art? And, <laughs> again, you could be here all night with that one. But one of the things at least is that I think what, what makes a photograph different from a little snapshot is the intentionality that everything is there because you've observed it and you've arranged it just so that all those things sit in relationship with each other to create that pleasing composition. So it's that sense of intentionality, but that starts with noticing. It starts with seeing what others don't. But one of my favorite quotations about landscape photography is the difference between a snapshot and a photograph. A snapshot says, this is what you would have seen had you been there. A photograph says, this is what you wouldn't have noticed even if you were standing right beside me. And of course, there's massive overlap between that and geography, isn't there? So the photograph behind me on, on our Zoom call at the moment is a photograph I took of the Giants Causeway. Um, beautiful location to go and sit when the sun is setting because the, the columns are just lit up this wonderful golden color. And if you go down there, you know, at sunset in the summer when the heat of the, the stones is still radiating out and you're sitting parts there, in this wonderful moment of peace and quiet, and you taste the salt in the air as the waves are breaking around those beautiful architectural shapes. And it's just you deeply embedded in that moment, observing, noticing the things that maybe other people just walk past. And then your eye turns from the aesthetic of it to the geology of it. You, you trace your finger around those impossible hexagonal shapes your mind travels back 59 million years ago, whenever that County Antrim looked like Gellingdeller in Iceland looks like right now, and the lava was spewing out. In fact, I found just before I um, fell and <laughs> broke my hand over Easter, I found a location close to Portrush, if any of you know the north coast of County Antrim, where I reckon I find evidence of a 59 million year old pyroclastic flow. Picked up this volcanic rock, but it was very crumbly and it turned into to 
um, dust very easily in my hand and there are fragments of shattered um, chalk the, and limestone that would come up from um, the vent that came up through it. And, and you just are so, it's so tangible. You're actually putting your hand on this geological history and then your mind goes to the likes of Vulcan de Fuego and thinking 59 million years ago in this location, a paraclastic flow happened. Your mind goes to Iceland in this location 59 million years ago, out came this lava and created these amazing shapes that I'm sitting on taking photographs of right now. Um, who was it said, uh, I can never remember his name, and maybe I should purposely forget his name, um, that the Giants Causeway is worth seeing, but not worth going to see. <laughs> uh, absolutely, totally disagree, because... He obviously hasn't seen your photograph at the back there. Oh, dear. The and you've, just take, you've just interconnected me across millions of years, across landscapes, across aesthetics... And I'm left with a warm glow looking at your sunset then, mm -hmm. which is just wonderful. I think we ought to put that up on the on the website. Listen, this has been absolutely fascinating, and we could carry on, but uh, <laughs> I think I think we ought to <laughs> we ought to save the rest for another podcast. Is there anything that I've not asked you about that we shouldn't save for another podcast? Yeah, John, maybe just one other thing, because I've been talking a lot tonight about the various types of knowledges that are important for using GIS and knowing what it can do, being the thing that fires a lot of the imagination, knowing why you want to use it for your pedagogical purpose. But there does come a point whenever the know-how is important. And if anybody would like to find out a little bit more about that, um, we're running a little initiative at the moment with the um, my wonderful uh, GIS guru Brendan Conway from Surrey and a Yorkshireman who's become an honorary Ulsterman because he's married to a girl from Northern Ireland and is living in Oma now, Andy Funnell. And we're running what we're calling the Great British and Irish Rivers GIS initiative. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? And the idea behind this really is just to use our local knowledge of a river that would be near us and look at some of the hard and soft engineering strategies that are, are going on there. So it would involve basically using that Survey123 app I referred to earlier to go and collect some data. And it's really trying to capture some citizen science. It's using the power of your local knowledge of that river that many of us have got to know an awful lot better as a result of lockdown over the last 12 months, because no doubt we've all been walking lots around our local area. And it's really trying to galvanise that, but galvanise that with a, a purpose of providing this wonderful, rich, spatial GIS database of river management all across the British Isles, which our students can then go in and use. Uh, and I'll share in with you, and you can pop these in the show notes at the end, what some of my students have produced from that. And it really allows them to see a, a Again, in a real-world context, how GIS is being used. And some of the work they've produced has been absolutely brilliant. But what we're going to do as part of that initiative is to provide some training and support. So if you've never used this before, it's a great way in. It's going to introduce you to a way in, in which... Um, uh, introduce you 
to it in a way in which you're going to be supported. And it's also going to connect you with a network of like-minded people. And so the networking opportunities there are going to be great. And we'll pop this into the show notes. I can tell you the show notes at the end are going to be a treasure trove of goodies for people to go and delve into. You can find out more about it and see a little bit of what some of my students have produced and learn how to sign up. Just to say, I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the chat. I've really enjoyed interacting with you on social media up until this point. And it is lovely at last to get together. And just as I said to you when we were chatting about this before, um, it's the only thing that's a shame is that we couldn't be sitting in a pub with a pint of Guinness each having this conversation. Uh, but apart from that, this has been a most delightful and glorious evening, and I, I really have enjoyed your company. Thank you very well, much. Well, me too. I, I think we might have to catch up at Guildford over a, over a cold Guinness. Oh, for sure. <laughs> That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, John.